Well, we've had some <clears throat> difficult things happen the last couple of weeks in the church family. Uh, death has come knocking on the door recently of this church. Uh, a couple weeks ago, um, Val lost her mother. I think Val and Chuck had cared for her for seven years, and then she passed on, and they're grieving now. We need to pray for them. And then Thursday morning, we had another person pass, and that was Tayshawn's mother, as you all know, um, who uh, died. Certainly no one expected that. She was only 38 years of age. No one had the first clue that that would happen that day when she left her house. It was the farthest thing from anybody's mind. Um, she leaves behind Tayshawn, who's only 18, and his sister Destiny, who's 16. And so it's been a difficult uh, time for them. Please pray for them as well. You know, none of us know when our time is going to come. Now, life is just so uncertain. Uh, it's, we're not immortal. People, think, people tend to think that way. They don't think about these kind of things. But we're only here for a little while in the grand scheme of things. We're not here all that long. If you sit down and really contemplate, we step out of our place of residence tomorrow morning to go to work or whether your work is at your home uh, or whatever you do, you, don't, you have no idea what the day will bring forth. Nobody here knows what's going to happen. Um, will we be singing when the evening comes, as the song says, or will, there be, or will, will we be crying when the evening comes? We don't know. Um, will things go well with us tomorrow, or will they got, maybe not go so well after all for us? Will our situ- uh, financial situation be favorable towards us, or maybe uh, we might find ourselves suffering financially as a result of things that happen tomorrow? How do we face life? How do we go on in this uncertain life with all of its uncertainties, its tragedies, its difficulties, its sorrows? How do we live? How do we go on when we've we've experienced a tragedy in our life? What do we do then? How do we look at life? How do we face it? We all need a perspective for us to, to that can guide us through the unknown because life is an unknown. We have no idea what's going to happen. We need a perspective, but not just any perspective. For example, we do not want the perspective of the world's smartest man, so-called, Stephen Hawking. Stephen Hawking is, is a brilliant man in, in many ways. He's a former professor of mathematics at the University of Cambridge. Stephen Hawking said this, There is no heaven, it's a fairy story. That's his perspective on life. Uh, that's how he sees life. When we die, it's all over with, nothing else happens. But that's not the biblical perspective on things. The biblical perspective was held by another man who was a professor of mathematics at the University of Cambridge, same place, same, same office, and uh, he was a professor in 1663. His name was Sir Isaac Newton, and he said this. He said, I have a fundamental belief in the Bible as the word of God written by men who were inspired. I study the Bible daily. Now, that's the perspective that we want to have as believers. We want to have the biblical perspective. And the Bible shows us the reality of life. It shows us how life really is. And it shows us how to live in light of eternity and how to live with all the uncertainties of life. So tonight we're going to take a a break from 2 Samuel. And we're going to go into Psalm chapter 90. And we're going to allow that chapter to help us to formulate uh, a biblical biblical perspective on the the, uh, brevity of life. Life is brief. Life is uncertain. We don't know when our time's going to come, so let's formulate a biblical perspective on the brevity of life. First of all, notice in the first two verses that God is eternal. Look at verse 1. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all our generations. Before the mountains were born 
or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God is eternal. It's the first thing you have to understand when, we get, when we're formulating a biblical perspective on the brevity of life. Now, Psalm 90 was written by Moses. Now, that sounds strange. We think, you know, the first thing we think about Psalms are, uh, they're written by David, right? But this one was written by Moses. And, and we don't think of Moses as writing a psalm. We think of him in connection with the first five books of the Bible. But he did write this psalm. Look at the heading of Psalm chapter 90 before verse 1. It says, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. And that is true. Moses wrote this, this psalm. So therefore, this is the oldest psalm there is. And the background for this psalm is the wilderness wonders, wanderings of Israel. And, and all that time in the wilderness that Moses led them. And they went around and around in circles because they disobeyed God. And they died in the wilderness finally. Moses draws on his own personal experience while in the wilderness. And from that, he shares with us valuable lessons that he learned. Now, this psalm is called a prayer of Moses, as you can see in the heading. And that gives us some insight into the, to the relationship that Moses had with God. He's called the man of God, it says here in the title. Man of God. He's described that way elsewhere. He's described that way in Deuteronomy 33, Joshua 14. 1 Chronicles 23, 2 Chronicles 30, Ezra 3. He was truly that. He, he was a man of God. And no man has ever been allowed to have such close communion with God as Moses had. He had a very close communion with God. He was chosen of God. As the uh, uh, burning bush experience shows us, he was, his leadership was backed by God, was confirmed by God. When people try to challenge his leadership, God said, no, this is the man I chose. I want Moses to be the leader. He was a man of God in the truest sense of the word. And we know that a man of God is also a man of prayer, as it says here. And a woman of God is, is a woman of prayer. People of God should be known for their praying. And that's what, that's what we have here in Psalm 90, a prayer. Well, Moses starts his prayer by saying in verse 1, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Now, in Deuteronomy 33, 27, Moses says that a little differently. He says this, the eternal God is, a, is our dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. He says the Lord has been our dwelling place. And by that he means the Lord has been our habitation. He's been our home. The idea here of the dwelling place, it's, it's got the, 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 the connotation of, of a refuge or safety, uh, protection, that kind of thing. Now, if anybody understood that, it was Moses. Uh, Moses was a man without a home. He was a man without a country. He didn't have all that, as were his people. Moses led the people out of Egypt and then... They proceeded to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And Moses knew what it was like to never settle down. He just wandered all his life. In fact, he wasn't even allowed to go into the promised land because of his sin in Numbers 20. And Moses learned that uh, as he was always on the move and traveling and moving and uh, going about the wilderness, that God was his true dwelling place. He had no dwelling place. He had no place to call home. But on earth, that is, but his, his true dwelling place was God himself. He learned he could find security and comfort in the Lord himself. That's why he says, Lord, you're, you're my dwelling place. I never had a place to dwell, but you're my dwelling place. And in the wilderness, Moses and Israel would pitch a tent temporarily, and they'd stay at a place, and then they'd, they'd, they'd pick it up, and then they'd move on to somewhere else. There was no permanent dwelling place, no place of earthly security. Uh, but, but the Lord was his refuge. Moses found his refuge in the eternal God. And here in Psalm 90, he attested the faithfulness of God as his refuge. You know, Jesus didn't provide earthly security either. He didn't, he didn't, he didn't promise that, earthly security. 
He said to one who considered following him, you know what he said? He said, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man, that's Jesus, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He did not have a place to call home either. And so uh, even though Jesus had no earthly place to call his home, he nevertheless found refuge where? In the Lord, right? The Lord was his dwelling place and his Father. He was constantly communing with his Father. Now, most people are, are you know, they, they go through life uh, seeking security in this life, but they completely ignore the Lord, who is the, who is the true refuge. And, and by the way, he says here in, in verse 1, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations, right? Not some, but all generations. So we in the 21st century can take refuge in the Lord just as well as Moses did in his time. And so I urge you, find your, temporary, find your security in God. This is, your home here is only temporary. This is a temporary dwelling place. You're not going to be here long on this planet. Find your security in the eternal God. There is no other security. Everything else is fleeting, moving, going past. No one knows what's going to happen tomorrow. You don't know what's going to happen to, to Wall Street or anything, this government or, the, or anything, any government in the world. No one knows. Your security should be in God. Your security ultimately is not in your relationships. That may fail. It's not ultimately in your friendships. It's not in your bank account. Uh, that may fail as well. Your security is not in your job. You may lose it. I hope you don't, but it's possible. Your security is in God alone. Why? Because God alone is immortal. He's eternal. He's the dwelling place of his people. In every generation, whether that's past, as it was for Moses, or present, or future, God is our dwelling place. Look at verse 2. He says in Psalm 90, verse 2, Before the mountains were born, or you ever you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you were God. The picture here is of, of giving birth to the world, just as the mother gives birth birth to a child so the lord gave brought forth this world the mountains are spoken of as being born god created them in other words uh, have you ever stood and gazed upon the awesome towering mountains that uh, maybe you are in uh, places like uh tennessee or or up north further or in colorado or, or in alaska or wherever I, I love to stand and see the mountains they're just amazing to me they're magnificent but who alone could create such beauty but god the eternal god the immortal god there was nothing and then God spoke, and the world came into existence. God brought forth this world. He brought forth this earth. He brought forth the mountains. And he, and he existed before the universe was. And he will exist after the universe is burned up. He's the eternal God. He's not bound by time like we are. That's what we have to get out of our heads. We're bound by time. But God is not bound by time. From everlasting to everlasting, it says he is God. He's immortal, invisible, the only God. In order for us to understand the... the the biblical perspective on the brevity of life and the uncertainties of life, we've got to understand that God is eternal. He's the eternal God. Our hope is not found in the things of this world, the uncertainties of life, but rather in the unchanging eternal rock of our salvation. That's the Lord God. He's eternal. And then secondly, notice that man, man is temporal. We're temporal. We're here only for a short time, verses 3 to 11. You turn back man into dust, it says, Moses said to God. And you say, return, O children of men, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by, or as a watch in the night. You have swept them away like a flood, they fall asleep. In the morning they are like grass which sprouts anew. In the morning it flourishes and sprouts anew. Toward evening it fades and withers away. For we have been consumed by your anger, and by your wrath we have been dismayed. You have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. 
for all our days have declined in your fury. We have finished our wrath, our years like a, like a sigh. And as for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80 years maybe. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow, for soon it is gone and we fly away. Who understands the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due you? So we are temporal. And note this great contrast between ourselves and God. God is eternal. He's immortal. Whereas we are here today and we're gone tomorrow. We don't know how long we're going to be here. In comparison with God, we are absolutely nothing. You know, it's always astounding to me when men, mortal men who are, are arrogant, make the claim there is no God. And they're like the idolaters in Romans 122, of whom it is said, professing themselves to be wise. They thought of themselves as wise, but in, in reality, they became fools, it says. 1 Corinthians 1.25 says, The foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And as we look in Psalm chapter 90, verses 3 to 11, we're going to see that it's going to reveal the measureless distance, the measureless distance between the eternal God and mortal man. Note the contrast between the two. Look at the contrast between God's sovereignty and, the, and man's mortality. Look at verse 3. It says, you turn back man into dust. Who turns back man into dust? You do. That's God. God is sovereign over the life of, uh, and death of human beings. He's sovereign over that. It's God who says, return, O children of men. When he says return, O children of men, he's talking about back to the dust. We came from the dust. From there we'll return. Genesis 3.19 says, you are dust. Man is dust and to dust you shall return. In other words, he's talking about death. And that's true of all people. Unless the Lord returns, that's where we're going to end up, in the grave. We're dust. Now, we know there's a a heaven and a hell beyond the grave, but he's talking about the grave right here. We're frail creatures. We're dust. The sovereign, powerful God says to finite, frail man one day, when that person's time has come, return to dust. And God knows when our time's going to come. He's numbered our days. Verse 4, for a thousand years in, your, in the sight of God are like yesterday when it passes by. In our estimation, a thousand years is a long time. We look at a thousand years and we say, wow, it's a long time. It's a millennium. A lot can happen in that time. Kingdoms can rise and fall in that time. Dynasties can, can, can come to, to, into being. Uh, the future of nations can change. But to God, it's just like yesterday. It's just like yesterday to him. It's nothing at all. Time is nothing to God. Now, I remember yesterday, as I think about the events of yesterday and the, and the memorial service we had for Tayshon's mother, I remember that, but now it's gone. This is another day, and today's going to be yesterday pretty soon. And it goes on like that. Genesis 5 talks about Methuselah living to be back in the time when the, when the earth first uh, came into being, 969 years of age. Can you imagine living that long? But that's, what is that to God? Nothing. It's like yesterday. So another day passes in, in, in the mind of God. There's another, there's another comparison here. It's like a watch in the night, it says in verse 4. A, a night watch is about three or four hours long. A thousand years to God is like a night watch of three or four hours to us. That's a thousand years is a long time to God. Not a big deal. Second Peter 3.8 says, With the Lord, one day is as a thousand years. A thousand years is as one day. We wonder why the Lord's taking so long to come back. Guess what? To him, that's not a long time. Thus it is. Verse 5, he says, You have swept, swept them away like a flood. They fall asleep. Just like a flood comes and wipes out everything. That's how life is. One, you know, It's just like there was a village there. A flood wiped it out. Now there's no village there. 
That's how life is. Just you don't know what's going to happen. They're, they fall asleep is a euphemism for death. They die. People die. We all die. We're here for a short while only. That's what you've got to think about. How long are we here for? Oh, we're going to be here for 78 years, 80 years maybe. Maybe, maybe not. And even if you are, so what? That's not all that long, really, if you think about it. Before you know it, it's there, it's gone, and then people die. What are you, going to do in the, what are you doing with, the, with Christ? What are you doing with him? Now, note the comparison of life with grass of the field. Verse 5, it says, uh, In the morning, these people are like grass, which sprout us uh, anew. In the morning, they flourish and sprouts anew. Toward evening, it fades and withers away. That's what verse 5 and 6 say. You know, we're, we're not compared, by the way, if you think about we're compared to grass here, we're not compared to maybe a mighty oak. That doesn't compare us to some great tree like the redwood or something like that. He doesn't compare us to the cedars of Lebanon that the Bible speaks of, the great majestic cedars of Lebanon that are in the Middle East. He doesn't talk about, he doesn't compare us to that. He compares us to grass. That's how, that's how God compares us. We're here today and gone tomorrow. In Israel... Uh, what was green grass today could become brown and parched a few days from now with a hot sun. It could be all over with and not be green grass anymore. Isn't life like that, though? We're green for a little while. We flourish for a little while. Uh, we accomplish something for a little while. Uh, we think when we're young, we're immortal. We, think our, we say this, we have our whole life ahead of us. Don't we say that? Well, yes and no. We do in one sense, unless... Unless tomorrow something happens and takes us out, then we don't have it at all. But we think we have our whole life ahead of us. And many young people don't even seem to give death a second thought. We're just always going to be here. It's always going to be like this. But then our lives are, but, but our lives are short in reality. And then comes the end and we find out we're not so immortal after all. We don't know what's going to happen to us. I, I, I've told you many times when I, Sandy and I went and saw our friend's son who was 20 years old. We watched him die in the hospital the age of 20, and it was crushing, blow to them. But that's life. We don't know what's going to happen. And then notice the contrast between God's righteousness and our sin, verse 7. God's righteousness and our sin. We've been consumed by your anger, verse 7 says, by your wrath we've been dismayed. Uh, by the way, this is another sign of our temporalness, the fact that we're sinners and God is righteous. You, you know, the eternal God never sins. He's of pure eyes and to behold evil, the scriptures say. God is light, and him is no darkness at all. When Jesus was on the earth, it says he never sinned. Second, uh, 1 Peter 2.22, who committed no sin, it says of Christ, neither was any deceit found in his mouth. He alone qualifies to be the Savior. He alone came to die on the sins of the, for the sins of, of people because he alone was sinless. And it's, and it's our repentance. It's coming to him and turning from our sin and turning to him in faith in Christ that, that gives us salvation only by faith in him. We're born in sin. We pursue sin. We run from God. We don't want anything to do with his holiness. And as a result, sin brings the judgment of God. That's the reality of it. Brings the judgment of God. Verse 7 says, we've been consumed by your anger. By your wrath, we have been dismayed. Dismayed has the idea of being disturbed or being terrified. You know, it's a terrifying thing to face the wrath of God. People don't want to hear this. Mike was talking this morning about how the fact that people don't want to hear the truth of the scriptures. They don't like that. But the, the fact of the matter is the scriptures teach that it's a terrifying thing to face the wrath of God. Now, why is Moses talking about the wrath of God here? Because he knew all about it, that's why. He well knew all about it, and they had experienced it firsthand. What happened to Israel when they were wandering around in the wilderness? Do you remember those chapters? The first five books of the Bible, first, uh, the last, uh, uh, you go into Exodus, 
Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and you, you can see what happened. They were, were constantly sinning and rebelling against God. They were always turning their back on, on God, the God who loved them. And so he unleashed his wrath and his anger. And don't, take, don't think that God's not an ang- a God of anger and wrath. He is. He's a God of love, but also a God of anger and wrath. We've been talking about this in Wednesday night Bible study. That he's this way, both ways. And Israel was especially fond of provoking God to, to wrath in the Bible. They were always provoking him. Exodus 32, while Moses was on Mount Sinai in the presence of God, what were the people doing uh, below? They were making a golden calf, and, and they said, This is your God, O Israel, who led you out of Egypt. And they were idolaters. What was the Lord's reaction to that? 3,000 people ended up dead that day. Leviticus 10, Nadab and Abihu offered strange fire before the Lord, which he, ought, he did not authorize them to, to offer, and they were consumed by fire themselves. Numbers 11, the people were constantly grumbling about their food. Manna from heaven, a miraculous thing that took place. Grumbled and complained and complained and grumbled and never stopped complaining, and, and God had to judge them in that chapter. Numbers 13, the first generation refuses to go into Canaan. They refuse to go and do what God said to do. And God promised them that their corpses would fall in the wilderness. You know what he says in Hebrews 3.17? He says, with whom was God angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, that first generation, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And there was Korah's rebellion. 14,000 people died because the rebellion they staged against Moses and the leadership. Numbers 20, Moses himself sinned against God because he didn't want to give him the glory he deserved. And... As a result, God said to Moses, you're not going to go in the promised land. And he didn't. So Moses knew all too well about the wrath of God. He saw it firsthand. The point is, God is righteous. We're sinful. What a great contrast between us and God. And the Bible has a message for those who rebel against God and those who refuse and reject Christ. It's found in John 3.36. It says, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides upon him or her. The wrath of God abides upon those, even right now, who have rejected and refused Christ. It's a terrifying thing to experience the wrath of God without Christ. But for those of us who do know Christ, we should remember that the wrath of God was placed upon Jesus as he bore our sins on the cross and experienced the full wrath of God. And so that wrath has been turned away from those who come to him and believe on him. Verse 8, he says, Moses said to God, you have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. The word iniquity means to make the straight path that God has a crooked one. Make it a crooked path, to distort that path, pervert that path, path, and make it different from the one that God made. God has a path he's laid down, he says, follow this path. And we say, no, we're not going to follow that path, we have our own path we've chosen to follow. That's what iniquity is. And we think that we can get away with this stuff, but God sees all this. There, these iniquities we, we commit, it says, are right in front of God. He's well aware of them. Even our secret sins, it says here, are, are done, they're done in the presence of God. He, he sees all this. You think you can't see this? We think we're getting away with something when everything we do, every sin we commit, is done with God's full knowledge. He knows. And by the way, in this verse, God's face is compared to a lamp that exposes all the darkness around it. He knows what's going on. There's no secrets before God. There's no more powerful light than his presence, the light of his presence. So God knows the thoughts of our heart. He knows the deeds we do. Nobody escapes his attention. Nothing we do escapes his attention. He knows it all. Verse 9, 
For all our days have declined in your fury. We have finished our years like a sigh. Again, Moses referring to the fury of God. He saw it firsthand in the wilderness. He saw it. And he says, when it talks about finishing our years with a sigh, it's like the weariness people feel after the end of a troublesome life, a life full of heartaches. Verse 10, as for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80 years, yet their pride is but labor and sorrow, for soon it is gone and we fly away. Now Moses lived to be 120. Aaron lived to be 123. Joshua lived to be 110. But remember that during Moses' life, that first generation all died. So it's a good chance that for them to reach the age of 70 or 80 in his time would have been quite a feat because they all died in, in the wilderness. But still, today, that's the standard, 70, 80 years. You know, some people are blessed with good and acceptable, exceptional health, and they live to be longer than that. And some people live uh, shorter than that, and they die in the prime of life. But shorter or longer, the fact is life is still brief, isn't it? Any way you look at it, we're here for just a little while. Our lives are consumed with labor and sorrow, it says. Now, labor is not a bad thing. Work is a good thing. It's, com it's commended by God. It's commanded by God. It's ordained by God. But Moses is using the term here to express the frustrations that often accompany, accompany labor. Uh, like it says, in, it says in Genesis earlier that, you know, by the sweat of your brow, you're going to eat bread, it says. Now, work is, is a good thing, but it's difficult often. And we've got to put up with a lot of problems in our labor and our work. And you know that from your job. To be under the curse of sin is difficult. And our lives are often mar marked by sorrow as well because we're under the curse of, of sin. Many kinds of sorrow, sickness and financial difficulties and relationship problems and financial setbacks and wayward children and disappointments on the job and all kinds of sorrows that come our way and death. And that's, this is the reality of life. This is how Scripture defines it and this is what we see. This is how it is. For soon, it says in verse 10, life soon is gone and we fly away. We're gone. We die. Now, Moses compares life to a bird that quickly flies away. <clears throat> My wife, Sandy, has bird feeders in the backyard. First, I didn't really care about birds. <laughs> it wasn't my thing. But I noticed I started watching these birds. She's got hummingbird feeder and a lot of feeders out there. And I started watching these birds come in and land on the, on the feeders. And they, were, they became very interesting. To this day, I go out there and I just stand there in the front of the window and watch them. It's fascinating to watch them. And, and they'll, they'll, they'll do all kinds of interesting things. But uh, like, for example, the other day, one of them, a bird came in and dive-bombed the other bird and knocked him out of place, and a lot of things happened. But I'll tell you one thing about this. If you're going to watch the birds, you better watch them as soon as they land because they don't hang around very long. They don't stay there very long. They, they, they feed and they're gone. They're gone. They fly away quickly just like life does. That's the point here. That's the comparison that's made. Verse 11. Who, know, who understands the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due you? Who knows the power of your anger? Well, Moses did. He, he saw more funerals than he knew what to do with. You're talking about doing funerals. More funerals than he cared to, cared to remember. Some people think that they've estimated that maybe 40 or 50 people, or I've read higher estimates, died on average, every day of that first generation in the wilderness. Now, I don't know if that's true. I don't know how they came to that conclusion. But nevertheless, a lot of people died, the first generation. Moses knew of God's power, but no one really knows the extent of God's power, how far it can go. By the way, the Net Bible translate that, translates that this way. It says, who can really fathom the intensity of your anger? Well, God's anger is intense. Yes, the Scripture teaches that very clearly. Jonathan Edwards preached that sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He wasn't kidding. 
Again, God is loving, compassionate, and yet on the other hand, God is loving and compassionate, but he's also angry and judgmental to those who reject him, to those who are evil. He's that way. And God gives sinners an opportunity to bow to Christ if they'll bow to him. If they don't bow to him, they'll face his stern and severe judgment. At the end of verse 11, it says, Your fury according to the fear that is due you. In other words, the fury of God is what causes people to fear him. They see that and they, they fear God as a result. How much better to submit to the Lord now? Submit to him now instead of provoking him to wrath. How much better to do that? And God and have a, a walk with God that's tremendous. Life is fleeting. Life is uncertain. The distance, the, you see the distance between us and God it continues to widen, doesn't it? You see the widening distance between us and God. So how do we feeble creatures live in this uncertain life, this uncertain world before an eternal sovereign God? Well, here's the application found in verses 12 to 17. The application is this. We must live in dependence upon this eternal God. We must live in dependence upon God. Verse 12, so teach us to number our days that we may present to, uh, we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Or if you grew up with the King James tradition, and, and this is how I know it well, teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts into wisdom. And I say that because this is the application section. We want to apply our hearts unto, unto wisdom. By the way, this is exactly what the rich fool did not do in Luke 12. He says in Luke 12, he says, Soul, you have many goods laid up. He had a lot of material possessions. You have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Take it easy. You got a lot of wealth here. God's answer to him was this. You fool, this very night your soul is required of you. You're going to die tonight. You know, there are many people who ignore God thinking they're going to live forever. We've said this. But we must ask God to help us to number our, teach us to number our days. And by the way, if we don't ask him to teach us to number our days, we're not going to get this on our own. We can't pick this up on our own. We're going to have to, have to ask him to teach us to number our days. We need his help to understand his perspective on the brevity of life. We're not going to get it on our own. He says, number your days. In other words, be aware of how few days you actually have on this planet. Be aware of that. Don't get so busy with distractions that you forget to consider how short life is. We're not here that long. I mean, we think we are, but it's an illusion. We're here, for, we're here for so much time, and then we look back and we say, wow, where did all the time go in my life? How did I, my kids all grew up? What happened to all those years? And, we, and that's what happens. We're not here long. We have to know how to make each day count. Ephesians 5, 8, 16 says, making the most of your time, redeeming the time. Make the most of your time. That doesn't mean we can't have relaxation or recreation. That's a necessary element in life, but we're to value our time. So teach us to number our days. Why? So we may present to you, Lord, a heart of wisdom. We may be wise before you. A heart of wisdom, that's a heart that's following God, not your own heart. People say, I'm going to follow my heart. You're in trouble doing that. Your heart could lead you anywhere. My heart could lead me anywhere. Follow God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, scriptures teach. A heart that is wise is a heart that meditates on the word of God day and night and thinks about what the scriptures say. It gets the right direction from the word of God. A heart that follows God, that's wise is one that places the will of God above its own. It's a heart that focuses on the spiritual needs of others. Let me ask you a question. Do you take the time to number your days? Do you think about the, the shortness of your days on earth? Earth. Do you ask God to help you, to teach you to number your days? Do you realize the mortality of your own soul and how short life is? 
Are you seeking to present to God a, a heart of wisdom? You know, we've got to come to the place where we understand and we evaluate the brevity of life and we learn to invest our lives in light of eternity, learn to invest in the, in the Word of God and the work of God. By the way, this applies not only to old people, but young people. I'm talking to everybody. Verse 13, we're talking about the application. We're talking about dependence on God. He says in verse 13, Moses prays, Do return, O Lord, how long will it be? And be sorry for your servants. Now Moses has spoken of the sins and judgment of God, and now he appeals to God's mercy. Do return, O Lord. Come back to us from judgment. We're, we've been judged. Have mercy upon us. Have pity upon us. How long are you going to be away from us? How long must we wait for your mercy? And be sorry for your servants, he says. He's pleading for the mercy of God here. And he still claims that they're Israel as the servants of God. He claims that they are, they are the servants of God. And God had not forsaken them. God would never disown his people. He didn't do that. And Moses knew that God judges sin, but he also knew that God was the God of compassion and mercy. So he pleads for the mercy of God. Verse 14. O oh, satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness that we may sing for joy and be glad all of our days. Satisfying, satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness. Morning's probably a metaphor for uh, a time of renewal after a time of affliction. They've been afflicted by God, but now it's a time for renewal. You know, sometimes night can be a frightening, miserable experience, can it? Sometimes at night you have problems that plague you and, you're, and you wish for the morning to come. And Moses longed for the loving kindness of God to satisfy them after a time of judgment. What greater satisfaction there is there than God himself? As, as he shows his loyal love, his loyal, steadfast love to you, the only thing that can satisfy people, the only thing that can satisfy you is God himself as you walk with him, as you love him and serve him. There is, sin can't satisfy. Nothing else can satisfy. Only the presence of God can satisfy. Let me ask you a question. Where are you seeking your satisfaction tonight? Is it in God? in his word or in something else? Are you seeking in some cheap substitute that can never satisfy your soul? And what is the result of those who are, are, who are being satisfied with God? He says in verse 14 that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. That's what satisfaction from God brings, joy and gladness. Even in the midst of trials, difficulties, even death, you can trust in the Lord. Charles Spurgeon said this, when the Lord refreshes us with his presence, our joy is such that no man can take it from us. Nobody, nobody can take the joy that God gives from you. Verse 15, make us glad according to the days you have afflicted us and the years we have seen evil. He says, Lord, you made us sad with your afflictions. Now make us glad. Restore to us your favor in proportion to the time that we've been sad. Make us glad now. Moses is a man who's seen adversity, but he's now longing for the the blessing and favor of God upon the people of Israel. Verse 16, let your work appear to your servants and your majesty to their children. There's that word servants again. It's almost as if God is, Moses is reminding God, we're your servants. We want to serve you. He prays for God's work to appear to his servants. He wanted to see the power of God on display in the lives of his servants so that they might be encouraged. When God, God's work is on display, people are encouraged. And he, saw, he talks about your majesty to their children. The children were the ones that would inherit, inherit the land. The first generation failed miserably. They died in the wilderness. But Moses wanted them to be blessed by God. And he prays for them. Can I tell you how? Let me, let me emphasize that it's very important to pray for our children. To pray for them. Please pray for your children. They're the generation that are going to re, replace us. This is part of applying the wisdom of God. That we pray for our children. So desperate. Are we praying for them? 
so crucial. Whatever else we do, are we praying for them? Are we praying that God will show his majesty to them? Are we praying for their salvation, that they'll come to know Christ? Are we praying that God will keep them from evil and evil people? Are we praying that God will show them their sin, their need of a Savior? We, we need to pray that God will be glorified in their lives. Extremely important. Can't emphasize it enough that we pray for our children. And finally, verse 17, let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and confirm for us the work of our hands. Yes, confirm the work of our hands. Moses is praying that God's approval will be upon them, upon the people of Israel, and that he'll delight in them. Isn't this a great prayer? It's a prayer you can think about for a long time to come. And Moses is even praying for this for himself, even though he's not going to enter in the land of Canaan. He's been banned from it. And he talks about confirming the work of, our, of their hands, confirming the Lord. You know what? If you're, if you're doing the work of God, you can ask him to confirm it. But if you're not, you can't do that. But if you're doing the work of God, and if you're doing the work of God in this church, and you're doing what God said in his word, you know what you should be doing? Praying that God will bless his work. Praying that God will establish his work and confirm it. Why? Because he said this is the work he wants done. So it stands to reason we should ask him to bless his work. Are you praying tonight that God will bless the work that is done in this church? Are you praying that God will bless the word that is preached in this church to those who hear? We need to pray for these things. This is the application. It's how we gain perspective on the brevity of life. How do we gain perspective on the brevity of life, the uncertainties of life, death itself, things that, that we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow? There's only one way, only one way, and we must realize that in this life, with all of its ups and downs, with, with all of its upheavals, with all of its joys, with all of its sorrows, with even the possibility of death on any given day, we must realize that we need to live in absolute dependence upon God. That's what Moses is praying at the end of this chapter. Depend upon him in all ways. We must live in absolute dependence upon God. We must ask him to help us to be wise. We've got to plead for his mercy. We've got to ask him to help us to make an impact upon eternity as we do his work. That's what we need to do. As we close tonight, let's pray. Let's pray for that. Let's pray and ask the Lord to make these things real in our lives. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for this time together, for your word. We do pray that uh, as we close tonight that we won't just uh, uh, have come here just to hear a sermon. We pray we'll take these things seriously. Uh, we pray for those who may not know you, that they will come to saving knowledge of Christ tonight. We pray for those who do know you, that we will learn to take life seriously, that we'll, consider, that we'll make the most of the time that you've given us that we'll seek to glorify you in the days that you've given us, that we'll number our days, that you'll teach us how to number our days, and that, we'll give you, that we may present to you a heart of wisdom, Lord. We just pray that we make this application, and you'll enable us to make the application to our lives. We praise in Christ's name. Amen.